I'm Helen King, I'm the Digital Strategy Lead at BMJ. Yeah, it's a really great meeting, it's full of energy. Um, I thought the presentation from the Wikidata guy was absolutely fascinating and looking at the various data sources and that Wikipedia was the largest health resource on the web now. I thought yesterday's demo sessions were absolutely fantastic. It was a really good way to see what the whole Crossweb team were doing and to get some experience with their products and services. Yeah, John Norman Searle, I'm the Production and Operations Director from Manchester University Press. We'd like to know more about uh, metadata with regard to humanities publishing in particular because I don't think uh, enough has been done in that particular area and I think we can probably do more and we'd like to get more involved with that. It's a fantastic networking opportunity um, and I have to say the last um, Crossref meeting I came to was 14 years ago so it's very interesting to see how the organisation has grown since then. I'm Lucy Oates, I'm Associate Publisher for Open Access at Oxford University Press. As someone who um, has a role in editorial, which doesn't necessarily deal day to day with some of the technicalities that um, obviously Crossref do deal with, I actually felt it was very accessible and uh, the level of the kind of level um, at which it was pitched meant that it was easy for people to come in who maybe don't deal with some of these issues all the time or are aware of them but want to kind of enhance their knowledge. So um, I certainly found it to be a really productive day. Hello, I'm Ginny Hendricks, Director of Member and Community Outreach at Crossref. Welcome to this podcast. We recently held a two-day event in London called Crossref Live 16, and we're bringing you three of the most popular talks, as well as some comments from our attendees, to give you a flavour of what happened. You'll hear from Dario Taraborelli from the Wikimedia Foundation, from Geoffrey Builder of Crossref, and from April Hathcock from New York University Library. I hope you enjoy listening. First speaker, uh, Dario Taraborelli, who is Director of Research at the uh, Wikimedia Foundation. So over to you, Dario. Thank you, Ed. Thanks, everybody. I'm super excited to be here today and honored uh, to kick off the day um, with an overview of initiatives that we've been running over the past couple of months um, that I think are going to be quite relevant to this audience. Um, this was the first uh, title of my talk, but I really I really figured out that the, uh, the real title is this one. Um, so I have a second version of it. Um, and I really want to talk about uh, the role of Wikipedia in distributing and disseminating um, scholarship. So talk about some of the not very well-known aspects of the project. Um, quick uh, reference to the link. So if you want to follow this presentation at your own pace, you can go to bit.ly slash wiki dash live 16. Or you can follow that DOI if you're into this persistent identifier kind of thing. All right. So a few words about, uh, about myself and my interest. Um, like I said, I, I run the research team at the Wikimedia Foundation. And we're a team of uh, data scientists and UX researchers. Um, and our mandate really is to uh, use a variety of methods, qualitative, quantitative, computational methods, to support our communities and develop uh, new technology informed by, by research. Um, and even though this is my official responsibility uh, for a couple of years now, I've been involved in several initiatives that focus on the interface between open collaboration on the one hand and 
the making and uh, dissemination and discoverability of research objects. Um, and today, really, I'm going to talk about something that lies at the intersection between these two sets of interests. Uh, and I want to start um, by saying a few words about uh, uh, Wikipedia. Right? So everybody knows that Wikipedia is the, an online encyclopedia, the largest uh, online reference work uh, that you're not supposed to cite. Um, and there are also a few big and largely unintended consequences of building an online encyclopedia that we didn't quite anticipate when the project started uh, um, 50, more than 15 years ago. Um, and the first one is Wikipedia's role as a major entry point into the scholarly literature. Um, so we know anecdotally that Wikipedia is extensively used by students, researchers, patients uh, uh, in conducting uh, pre-research, but what does that mean in practice? Well, we now know, thanks to Crossref, among other things, that uh, Wikipedia currently accounts for a very large share of uh, uh, DOI resolutions every month. And in fact, it's among one of the top uh, non-traditional sources of uh, um, DOI lookups. And it's ahead of uh, several individual publisher websites, which to us was quite unexpected, but it sort of like, uh, validates uh, the role that uh, um, our community efforts uh, um, are having in disseminating knowledge, uh, including scholarly knowledge, uh, to the planet. We also have uh, extensive qualitative and quantitative data from a variety of sources indicating that Wikipedia is today the primary resource uh, that is used by, again, students, researchers to conduct pre-research. Um, and whether you like it or not, people will start from Wikipedia uh, for identifying um, uh, references and, and content that they will then uh, go ahead and, uh, and, and study. Uh, but if you only look at the field of medicine, for example, um, some of our best estimates, there's actually a third-party study uh, from um, two researchers, indicates that um, nearly the, the nearly 200,000 articles that we currently have uh, on Wikipedia uh, across over 275 languages account for more traffic uh, than the NIH uh, or WebMD. So, uh, People looking for information about drugs, about uh, um, diseases and treatments, they will go primarily to Wikipedia and start from there, as opposed to going to some of the more canonical sources about uh, uh, medical information. That in itself to me was quite shocking when I, when I first saw this, uh, this data. Um, but Wikipedia is also playing a major role in providing access to the literature um, in local languages. Um, in the context of global health crisis. This is one of my favorite examples during the uh, Ebola outbreak in 2014. Um, a large number of Wikipedians started like, really reading and summarizing the literature, both paywalled and open access, uh, to just try and make the best available scholarship, uh, uh, to make it available across languages to uh, patients uh, and, um, and clinicians uh, in the areas affected by the outbreak. So um, I think it gives you a sense of what uh, Wikipedia's role in disseminating scholarship uh, means for humans. Uh, but there's a second aspect that is rarely talked about that I, I think is um, going to be increasingly important in the next uh, couple of years. And it is basically Wikipedia's role as a primary source of linked open data. Um, 
I don't know how many of you have heard of uh, DBpedia. Quick show of hands, if you heard of that. Yeah, okay. So uh, DBpedia, in a nutshell, is a set of algorithms uh, that take uh, the entire contents of Wikipedia, uh, basically free form, text, uh, and links, and turn them into structured data, like basically an RDF dump. Um, and DBpedia, which is this third-party project uh, that was developed by uh, a number of universities, distributes then this link data, uh, which makes Wikipedia's content machine readable, uh, to an entire ecosystem of uh, linked open data services. Uh, and it's currently the highest centrality node uh, in this ecosystem, meaning that there's a very high chance that no matter what service you use for uh, looking up something for semantic search, the data ultimately comes from Wikipedia. Um, and this graph only covers the public um, um, linked open data web services, but companies like IBM, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Google, Apple, they're all using DBpedia in order to power their own semantic search uh, functionality. So this model is interesting because it really allows uh, uh, Wikipedia's content to be disseminated to machines and to support all these services. There are a few challenges with this model. Uh, the idea um, is that the way, we, the way DBpedia currently works uh, it's a me mechanical uh, transformation of content into the set of RDFs uh, that really doesn't have, uh, doesn't allow for much uh, quality control. So it's a mechanical process, uh, meaning that anything that goes into the system upstream gets then transformed and distributed to the entire planet via linked open data. And you can imagine how potentially problematic this is. Uh, imagine any error or mistake, make it into a system, it will get disseminated uh, immediately through the entire web. So um, we started like, thinking a few years ago about this issue, and instead we're like uh, figuring out what could be a model in which we apply the same principles of Wikipedia in terms of uh, collaboration, human and, uh, and machine control, um, and revision and, and discussions to this process. In other words, Instead of thinking of building uh, a regular online encyclopedia for humans, um, what if we start to create a, a structured knowledge base that everything, not just everyone, meaning machines and humans, can both um, write into and consume? And that is basically the vision be be behind uh, this new project that we launched in 2012. So, the question becomes not so much as we, uh, how to build a comprehensive online encyclopedia, but how to build a, um, a knowledge base that is machine-readable, like I said, editable by anyone, whether you're a layperson or an expert or an algorithm, supporting all kinds of curation, um, aiming for comprehensive coverage. So not the knowledge base about any individual field or any individual um, um, scientific area, but trying to cover really uh, any, any entity you can name. And finally, providing a transparent layer of verification in, 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 in sourcing. That's basically the vision behind Wikidata. Um, and Wikidata is basically um, a knowledge base that anyone can edit. Um, it's uh, our most recent project. It was launched in 2012. It's been developed by, by the German chapter of Wikimedia, uh, Wikimedia Deutschland. All the data that it includes uh, is a CC0 license. 
and it's uh, tightly integrated with Wikipedia and other sister projects. Just to give a sense about uh, the size of the project, we currently have uh, about 24 million entries, and all of these entries are linked to each other via what we call statements um, that represent properties and relationships between these, uh, these items. Uh, and we currently have about uh, 120 million statements, and, uh, and they're growing uh, quickly as, as I speak. Um, we also have a very large active editor population, which is uh, quite unusual for our projects. Um, our, um, our projects uh, have experienced some stagnation in the, in the growth of our population, and um, uh, Wikidata currently has a, a, very, uh, a very large uh, and, um, and quickly growing population of contributors, about a quarter of the size of uh, active contributors of the English Wikipedia. And in a nutshell, uh, Wikidata is structured um, in this way. So there are items that represent uh, basically any entity you can, you can name. And these items are described by a set of properties. This is the entry about Douglas Adams. Uh, and you'll see there's a property that says where he was educated at. And there's a, a value, which itself is another item you can click through. Um, and a bunch of qualifiers that specify the scope um, of, that, of that statement, um, as well as references. And the system is has been really built with the notion of uh, granular sourcing and referencing at the statement level, so that you can represent the provenance and the source for every single assertion that you have uh, in the system. And Wikidata's contents are not just limited to a specific field, like I said. Uh, it's really um, a knowledge base that aims to be as broad in coverage as possible. Think about anything that is on Wikipedia, but also much more than that. It's not limited to notable entries. Um, it's aiming to have a broad coverage from anything from uh, mundane topics all the way to the more scientific, uh, um, scientific ones. And this is just an example of how the San Francisco item is linked to um, other items uh, that we have uh, in Wikidata. So once you have all of this data in, inside the system, you can start retrieving it. And we have a set of very powerful APIs that allow you to explore and retrieve all this data in a variety of formats. So these are just a few examples of the queries that you can currently run. We have a, a large catalog of uh, notable paintings by notable artists. We have uh, the entire uh, genealogy of notable individuals that you can generate uh, at the click of a button uh, by running a single query. And we also have uh, information about uh, uh, researchers and their location and uh, any geographical aspects associated with them. It's a map of uh, the birthplace of people currently employed by MIT or the subset of MIT employees that are in Wikidata. And this is a map of uh, authors with a known location uh, and an orchid. Um, and it's still pretty sparse, but it's growing. So go and register an orchid if you haven't yet. Um, the part that really excites me the most is the role that Wikidata is playing in the area of scientific uh, linked open data. And there's a, there's a fantastic project called the Gene Wiki which is basically the project responsible for any information you find about genes and uh, proteins associated with genes on Wikipedia. They created this uh, tremendous resource, uh, um, and they started editing Wikipedia, and they're now shifting their effort towards uh, Wikidata. And there's this great presentation by Benjamin Good 
um, on opportunities of bio-curation that are offered by, by Wikidata. And this is just an example of the kind of, uh, the kind of statements uh, that this project, uh, which is basically a community of experts, really, uh, bioinformaticians, um, is adding to, um, to Wikidata using the same structure that I mentioned before, entities, statements, qualifiers, and references. And just to give you a sense of the current content that we have in Wikidata, Wikidata currently contains uh, um, items about all human and mouse genes and associated proteins, um, all gene ontology terms, um, disease ontology terms, uh, drugs approved by the FDA, uh, microbial genomes, et cetera, et cetera. So it is, a, in some areas, a pretty comprehensive uh, repository of linked open data to describe all these entities. And even in this case, you can start running queries at the push of a button to start uh, identifying relations between entities. So for example, um, you can extract from Wikidata a list of all the known drug-to-drug -drug interactions for a given molecule. Um, or you can get a list of diseases that are known to be treated by, um, by a, a specific drug, or also diseases that might be treated by the same drug in virtue of the known association between that drug and other diseases. So it's becoming like an extremely powerful uh, discovery tool, not just for lay people, but also for experts in these fields. Now, I want to go back for a second to the, uh, the issue about provenance uh, and verifiability. Um, so if you remember, that was like the, uh, the last uh, um, desirable property of the system that I was, uh, I was mentioning before. Um, and the reason why this is particularly critical for us is that Wikipedia is not the truth. It's not about the truth, as this famous um, essay is saying. Is saying. Uh, Wikipedia is about verifiability. Um, Wikipedia is really about providing a set of reliable sources that you can then go ahead uh, and uh, form your own opinions about uh, whether what, what Wikipedia is saying is accurate or not. Uh, and that's really what makes Wikipedia such an outstanding service. It's not the content in itself, but it's really the verification layer that it provides pointing to scholarly literature, pointing to news articles, pointing to clinical trials, et cetera, et cetera. And I really like this quote um, by Egan Willigan um, about the fact that in five years, uh, the verb to Wikidata will mean to look up a fact uh, with literature provenance. I think this really nicely captures um, what the project is trying to achieve at the moment. Um, and there are some related ideas that the Gene Wiki people uh, start describing around the fact that if we have a, um, sourcing at a statement level, uh, we can start uh, providing a very granular way of analyzing the trustworthiness of individual facts as a function of the sources that back these statements. This is something unprecedented. There is no, there is no system that allows you, at the moment, to have this very granular link between a source and a fact with broad coverage across all fields and all domains of knowledge. And so you might think that given what we're doing, uh, our coverage and our representations of citations and references in Wikipedia is absolutely amazing. And it turns out that it's not. Uh, it's actually pretty terrible. Um, and just to give you two examples, uh, this is the current coverage of references in Wikidata. So this chart shows you the growth of statements that we have uh, in Wikidata and the breakdown of statements as a function of where they, found they, where they find their, uh, their references from. So up to 70% of all statements we currently have uh, in Wikidata currently have either no source at all 
or they cite a Wikipedia article as a, as a source, which, as you remember, is something you're not supposed to do. So <laughs> only 25% of these statements uh, uh, accurately reference an external, an external site. So we have a long way to go to, uh, to live up to the expectations of uh, the verifiable uh, linked open data repository that Wikidata aspires to be. But also, if you look into Wikipedia, if you ever click the edit button and try and figure out how citations are represented within Wikipedia, you will notice this fantastic blurb um, of, of text that is the way in which we currently represent uh, references in Wikipedia. It's via templates that are hard-coded into the body of an article, which makes it really hard, as you can imagine, to perform any kind of manipulation of these objects. Uh, if you need to update them across an entire Wikipedia edition, if you need to um, modify them, if you want to propagate some information, it's extremely hard to do this via um, hard-coded references. So to try and address these issues, early this year, uh, we organized uh, the first dedicated initiative uh, called Wikisite to try and tackle these problems. Um, this is really the, uh, um, the, 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 uh, the start of a process that um, really was initiated years ago, but a time where the technology was not mature enough and all the community efforts for a variety of reasons uh, had failed to, uh, to deliver this vision. And, and so today, thanks to um, Wikimedia, Wikimedia Germany, but also support of a number of funders, uh, generously sponsored the event, um, Sloan Foundation, the Moore Foundation, and Crossref, we managed to bring together different communities of librarians, people working on a scholarly infrastructure, uh, publishers, open data advocates, uh, researchers of uh, references, Wikipedians, Wikidata contributors, to start like, shaping this vision. And if at a high level, the goal of this project really is to build a, a database of references in Wikipedia, in Wikidata, to serve uh, all these projects. Um, concretely, what that means is uh, figuring out a set of data models and workflows and technology um, to really build this thing. Um, and today, I want to give you like a, a quick overview of the main highlights and things that I'm personally very excited about. Um, because I think that might be very relevant also for what you're doing in terms of disseminating um, scholarship. So first off, like I said, we started building a rich bibliographic uh, uh, data model for representing source metadata into Wikidata. It's just an example of what we have um, for journal articles and journals. Um, I have to say that also we have an extensive set of identifiers in Wikidata. So the Wikidata community is very excited about uh, Wikidata mappings between uh, Wikidata and external catalogs. So if there are identifiers from your own catalogs, your own publications that are not here, please reach out. We make sure that we create the corresponding properties. Um, we also started importing all the PubMed Central articles that are currently cited in English Wikipedia via a PMC ID. Um, and we also imported into Wikidata all of the open access biomedical review literature from the past five years. Uh, we're still like testing the waters and seeing if all the data models make sense. But as you can imagine, having this information at the tip of our fingers uh, inside Wikidata is really what's going to allow our communities to reuse it and integrate it into, um, into this larger body of knowledge. 
And I should clarify that the point of this is not to put Crossref out of business. Uh, instead, we're trying to see if we can integrate all the rich metadata that uh, Crossref is aggregating into this much larger body of knowledge uh, where we can enrich it with information about other entities and other statements that we have in Wikidata. Um, on top of bibliographic information, we're also adding an open citation graph for all of these sources. And currently, we have uh, um, over half a million citations, um, so scholarly citations between um, any two articles that are represented by a dedicated uh, property um, called Cites. And, and this effort is growing thanks to a number of partners that, have, uh, uh, that are helping us identify sources of citation data that are currently released under um, CC0. We have a pretty decent coverage of scholarly journals. Um, so based on data from uh, um, um, Ulrich's uh, web directory, there are currently about 34,000 active um, articles published in the English uh, language. I don't know how accurate the number is. If you have different numbers, I'd love to hear them. Um, in English, there are about 20,000, 28,000 active journals. Um, Wikidata currently has uh, about 24,000 um, entries about journals, um, all of them with uh, identifiers. Uh, um, and just to give you a sense of how that compares to coverage uh, in Thomson Reuters, uh, the uh, journal citation report, uh, of course, is a narrowly um, curated uh, set of journals. It's not representative of the entire set of journals. There are other databases that include more journals. But the number of journals that, that is currently included in that database is about 10,000. So we have in Wikidata a much larger number of, uh, of journals um, uh, represented. Um, and there's another really exciting project that I wanted to highlight. Um, that's what we call the Zika corpus. Um, and to me, this really embodies this vision of uh, not waiting for you know, uh, this set of, 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 uh, of metadata and this body of knowledge to become usable, uh, we need these solutions now because uh, we need to tackle some of the biggest public health crises of the planet and we can try and build something based on open data that can immediately deliver value to patients uh, and, and doctors all over the planet. So in collaboration with the GeneWiki project, we started building this thing, which is basically uh, a four-layer linked open data um, repository. It consists of uh, an encyclopedic layer. This is what you would imagine um, you could find on Wikipedia, including encyclopedic entries about uh, um, items related to Zika virus, as well as images from Wikimedia Commons. We have uh, an expert curation layer, uh, which is produced by this community of uh, bio-curators. Uh, it consists of information that is extracted from the literature, uh, both by machines and humans, but is reviewed by experts in the field. And for example, it represents uh, um, the different types of tra transmission processes that are currently known uh, for uh, Zika virus. There's the underlying bibliographic data layer where all these expert annotations are linked to the corresponding sources. Um, so this is an example of a paper with identifiers is then reused uh, in uh, the expert annotation layer. And finally, we're adding the open citation uh, graph layer. So basically, every single citation between um, any uh, pair of articles in this, in this corpus. And it's a pretty manageable corpus. Uh, the total number of papers ever published on Zika research is ridiculously small. Uh, we're talking about 1,000 papers in total. 
Um, but as you can imagine, having this entire data set uh, provides an extremely rich view into everything we know um, about, uh, about this topic. And once you have this data, we can also, like I said, start like running uh, a set of really interesting queries. And if the internet assists me, I'd like to give you a quick uh, live demo. See if this works. Okay, so uh, if you don't speak Sparkle, don't worry. This is basically the way in which you retrieve Wikidata uh, statements. There's a handy helper here, and you can run a query. And this query will give you the, uh, the top authors currently um, cited in the Zika corpus. Um, you can obviously click through and go and check uh, uh, the entry about any of these authors in Wikidata. Um, and you can also export data set, of course, uh, and come up with different, uh, different ways of representing this data set. So let's see, for example. It's just a distribution of, uh, of citations per author. Uh, let's just give you a sense of, uh, of the capabilities. This is entirely data-driven. So you push a button, you run a query, and in, in no time you will get an answer um, generated from all of this data. And following the same approach, uh, following the same approach, uh, um, a few people started developing some, uh, um, some applications. How am I doing time-wise, by the way? Can I still use like five more minutes? Yeah? Okay. No more. All right. So I'm going to give you a quick, uh, a quick overview of uh, what you can do. This is all in entirely generated via um, queries to, uh, to Wikidata without, uh, without any additional um, coding required. Um, in Really, what I'm excited about is the fact that eventually we'll be able to run all sorts of queries that, for example, would be able to give us something like uh, old statements uh, that are citing a journal article that was retracted. Right now, identifying these type of, uh, of references in Wikipedia is extremely costly. And having all this data in a database would make it really um, easy to, uh, to identify and potentially correct these references across projects. And the final thing I want to say is that um, um, we'll be able to provide a very granular Altmetrics, not at the, at the article level, but the statement level. So think, for example, about uh, the idea of aggregating um, all information about uh, um, statements, like facts extracted from, uh, uh, from literature that are funded by a given funder or that are published by a given publisher. Until now, we didn't have that level of granularity, right? We can talk about altmetrics uh, uh, at the, say, a blog level or a tweet level. This is going to give you extremely grand information connecting a publisher or a funder to the very specific fact that is mentioned in a given paper uh, in the literature. And we're also working on a bunch of projects uh, to do uh, automated extraction of knowledge uh, from the literature uh, to feed uh, new statements into Wikidata. So with that, I'm going to conclude um, and say that uh, I'm hoping that I gave you a broad sense of uh, what both Wikipedia and Wikidata mean for the dissemination of uh, scholarly content. And I'd like to finish up with uh, a few requests. Um, obviously, these efforts depend critically on uh, the availability of some data. And we have a community of people that are hungry for content and that are uh, after you. So you need to be prepared and ready. 
And this is not just about humans, but we also have machines. And you need to be ready to have uh, your contents and your papers ready to be read by machines, because that's the future. And uh, uh, both in terms of content and licensing, you, you need to make sure that uh, um, your, your papers, your, your, your published output, be compatible with, um, with machines. So the, the two requests that are really critical for sustaining these efforts are, one, the release of reference data. Um, sharing this data quite literally can help save lives. So uh, hosting this data in proprietary databases is completely useless for our purposes. So um, I strongly encourage you to think about uh, the release of this data via Crossref, um, making sure especially this data is available under, uh, under open licenses. And also, like I said, uh, the ability of uh, um, running um, automated scripts to extract uh, knowledge from, uh, from papers is something that our communities are really, are really um, keen on exploring. So um, supporting all these efforts will really ensure that your contents and your metadata uh, will feed into a much bigger live body of knowledge uh, and increase eventually the impact and visibility and value of your output. So I hope we can have you on board and I'd like to thank you for your attention and I'll take any questions that you have. I'm Carly Strasser from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Yeah, this is a very unique community and something I haven't been exposed to in the past. So I definitely feel that there's a sense of camaraderie among the publishers and a real sense that the publishers want to work with these identifier organizations like ORCID and Datacite and Crossref to really, um, again, help that research communication process move forward. I love the idea of organization identifiers. Uh, selfishly, I think that for funders, we could really use uh, a nice, easy way to collect information from uh, the organizations that we fund. So being able to say with some certainty, these are all publications that we've funded out of, say, Harvard University. That's useful information for us. We can really benefit from having that high quality metadata. And so I think that uh, organizational identifiers could really help us as funders, but I think also more broadly, um, it could really help the community because I think the more information we have and the, the better able we are to tie together um, people and places and things, then um, the more interesting tools we'll be able to build on top of that information. I'm uh, Andrew Smeal, Head of Strategic Projects at Hindawi Publishing Corporation. Part of my job is to think about long-term changes in publishing and how that's going to affect the industry. And Crossref is a really important part of that because part of their agenda is to play with new technologies and decide um, how standards are going to change and what new tools are, are on the horizon that are going to affect uh, the way that publishers work. So um, traditionally it was my role to get up here um, and do a ridiculously fast talk about all the things that we were working on, where they were in the pipeline, when they were, you know, from start to, to delivery. And thankfully, uh, I don't have to do that anymore because we actually have a product team and they're doing that. So I instead can focus in detail on something, a particular project that we're doing. And in this case, we're going to talk about the case of the missing leg. Now, like all good stories, it's got to start with a flashback, right? Uh, a few years ago, actually, it was like February, the first year that I started in Crossref. One of the first meetings that I had, 
um, was to talk about this thorny issue of author identifiers and whether we could create author DOIs, as they were called back then. And, um, and we had this meeting and, and so on and so forth, and, and this actually became a priority project. Uh, but at the time, we really had to do a lot of socializing of the idea. We had to go out and talk to lots of different stakeholders. We had to get their buy-in and so on and so forth. And um, eventually, you know, a few, uh, few years later, we had a sort of a prototype that we showed people. Um, and I know that Will, uh, who, Will, raise your hand if you're in the audience. Will, over there, the poor developer who's, uh, who, who is responsible for trying to get this prototype up. Um, this was shown first at CERN, um, and, um, and we really started to get a lot of people sort of buying into the concept that we could create another identifier system. Uh, and, and of course, the, you know, since then, it's just been a tremendous success. Uh, we have ORCID, and, um, and ORCID is growing uh, very nicely indeed. And this has become a piece like Crossref of core uh, persistent identifier infrastructure for the scholarly community. Um, there's, a, there's an older story, but a similar story for another piece of core infrastructure for the scholarly community, and that's Datasite. Uh, which at the time it was founded uh, was developed to, in order to encourage uh, people to assign uh, DOIs, persistent identifiers, to data, and therefore to encourage people to cite data and make data available. And, um, and they too have become a core element of the persistent identifier uh, scholarly uh, infrastructure. And then, uh, you know, of course, the third one is Crossref. Um, approaching 85 million DOIs. Um, what this has illustrated is the power of persistent identifiers. DOIs in two cases, ORCID in the other, right? This has become really essential, an essential tool for, for most of us in our work. And, and I'd like to talk a little bit about why I think that is. And the first thing is that there's a huge amount of pressure on us all at the moment. Um, to, um, to evolve, to evolve our systems, to evolve systems that, quite frankly, were you know, devised as sort of when scholarship and, and scholarly communication was m maybe a, you know, a cottage industry, um, and where you could keep track of all of the researchers in your field, um, even if they were international, and where you could keep track of all the content in your field, even if it was being published all over, and where you could you know, keep, you know, there may be a handful of funders out there, and, and besides, at that time, they probably, you know, weren't as important in the picture. And, and what's happened over the years, and what, you know, it took us a while to catch up with is this industrialization of scholarly communication, where suddenly the amount of content that we're producing, the number of researchers who are producing it, the number of places where they're producing it from has skyrocketed. And all of a sudden, a lot of the sort of manual processes, the things that you could rely on, you know, I know that this uh, Andrew Smith is different from that Andrew Smith, don't scale. They just don't scale at that level. They don't scale at the document level. They don't scale at the researcher level. And you know, when so many of these organizations are under increasing pressure to produce metrics, you know, about how, you know, what they're, what they're producing, uh, whether or not they're meeting certain, uh, you know, criteria for publication, uh, whether it's, you know, the publisher's own criteria, the journal's criteria, or funder criteria, or institutional criteria, there's a huge amount of pressure to gather metrics and present these metrics in order to analyze how they're performing. And this can really only be done at scale if you're using identifiers. 
And so largely, ORCID and DataCite and Crossref are a story of enabling a lot of the efficiencies that allow you to do these kinds of things at scale. So now what? Sounds like a pretty good story so far, right? Well, I think we still have a problem. And the problem is this. At the moment, we have a stool and a not particularly stable stool. It's got two legs, effectively. We have two sets of important identifiers. We've got content identifiers, those provided by DataCite and Crossref, and contributor idea, uh, identifiers, those provided by ORCID. But in order to gain the efficiencies that we really need, in order to really be able to scale this kind of stuff up, in order to really automate workflows, uh, we need another thing. We need organizational identifiers. Now, this isn't like a new realization to us. Um, at the very same time that I was talking to people about author identifiers or author DOIs, people were saying, hey, you know, how about organizational identifiers? And we were like, yeah, that's really important, but, you know, we can work on one thing at a time. And besides, you know, it seemed at the time that there were a lot of things out there that might be uh, coming into the space that could help. Um, and we thought uh, rather, you know, uh, lazily, perhaps, uh, that maybe when we were done with ORCID, it would be finished and we wouldn't have to worry about it, right? Well, let me just ask a question here. How many people think at the moment the organizational identifier problem is largely solved? Raise your hand. Right. Kind of what I suspected. Yeah, so we, we don't really have that third leg yet, right? We've got a lot of services and I think the problem is, and this is something I'll talk about in a little more detail, is that for one reason or another, they're not fulfilling the needs. They're not fulfilling the same role that a community-driven open identifier system like data sites or Crossrefs or ORCIDs does. There is no existing identifier system that plays that role at the moment. And, you know, we're not the only people who think so, as I've just pointed out. You're, <laughs> uh, don't seem to think that it's uh, solved, but you know there have been some studies, this one is a, is, a, is a pretty thorough one, that just basically identifies this and says this is really still the big outstanding problem that makes it hard for us to scale uh, things up in the way that we need to scale things up if we're going to actually measure how we're performing on, on, on various metrics here. So there's a, a documented need for this you know, our members have been talking to us, and, I, and, and, and again, you know, I think it's probably not just Crossref members who have been telling this, but, you know, we, we work very closely, and I'll talk about this in more detail, with DataCite and ORCID, and they're being told the same thing. You know, we know that there's a lot of work out there that's been done, um, but for some reason, uh, even though we finished this ORCID thing, um, and, uh, and that's up and running, and running very well, we have this gap. So, what does this mean? Well, I don't know whether you saw this on Monday. You were probably traveling here. Um, but on Monday, we made an announcement um, on our blog. And that is that we're working with DataCite and ORCID and uh, Thor to try and figure out whether there's something that we can do to address this problem that's just been sitting there unaddressed for so long. So we've got a, uh, been working together basically uh, all year now. Um, to try and understand, A, why the current systems aren't working, and why it is that they haven't seen uptake 
uh, in the same way that Datacite and Crossref and Orgit have. Um, and to try and understand whether there's anything that we can do uh, to try and change that, right? Because presume, you know, possibly a lot of good people have tried this. If it hasn't succeeded yet, maybe it's impossible, right? And we don't want to touch this with a barge pole. Um, but we went out and we've done a, a lot of work. And uh, by we, I mean in the, in the initial phase, um, uh, uh, Patricia Cruz, Laura Hack, and I went to a few conferences along with, with uh, uh, Retinue Martin Fenner and Josh Brown and, and Tom Danerville and stuff like that. And we, um, and we, and we met with the community um, and, and talked about this and tried to understand what was going on. And, and the reason that we got together to do this, right, um, in the first place, right, was that um, we had all come to the same conclusion, right? Orchid was sitting there going, hey, we, you know, we kind of got some sort of organizational identifier is not working for us. Um, we know the identifier space. This is, I hope, evident. Um, and, and critically, we each represent a broad community, right? So together, and this is a critical thing in creating infrastructure, uh, you have to create an infrastructure that does help serve a broad community. And, and you be, have to be able to have contacts and reach out to them. Um, and then, of course, uh, we're willing to take it on. And the last thing, and this seems obvious, but you know, at some point we were kind of worried about this, we can't create a new organization every time we need a new identifier. This just doesn't scale. Um, we've got to see if there's something that we can do cooperatively, leveraging our existing expertise, our existing um, you know, staff, our existing resources to see if we can solve this problem. Why now? Again, I mean, this is sort of re restating what I've said, which is just actions needed. This is the, the last big, I mean, not the last big, but this is the most obvious big thing that's missing uh, from, from our system. Um, so I want to explain a little bit about what's been done. Um, and then what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about um, the process of, dis of, of identifying some of the requirements. And it's going to be a kind of very superficial coverage of this. Um, and the reason for that is that, as I will point out later in my presentation, we have uh, both the blog posts from all three organizations, and all three of those blog posts point to quite much more detailed documents that explain the process we went through, what we concluded, and so on and so forth. But I want to give you sort of the high-end high, high side of it. So we gathered together um, you know, uh, work from a bunch of different organizations that had looked at the space, uh, we, uh, you know, assembled a little, uh, use cases. Um, critically, and I think this was really important, we went out to the community to pay two big events where we had sort of broad stakeholder uh, presence, uh, the CNI meeting in the spring of, um, of, of this year, and then the Force 11 meeting, and we presented you know, what we were thinking of doing, and we talked to librarians, and we talked to researchers, and we talked to other publishers, and we talked to third-party providers. Um, and, um, and what we wanted to do at first was sort of understand the broad requirements of, of the identifier space, uh, largely just to figure out whether there were any like horrible reefs there that we were going to get stranded on. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we were actually taking on something that we might be able to handle. So um, roughly, the requirements that we encountered fell into two broad categories. Uh, the first um, I'm going to call here organizational. Uh, but they're kind of non-functional requirements. That is that they don't have anything to do with specific functionality of the system. They have to do with qualities of the system that would be required for it to be successful and for it to uh, get broad uptake. 
Um, so these organizational principles almost all have to do with the issue of trust, right? Um, and the trust issue that we're facing, and it's the trust issue that we always face uh, building infrastructure, is this, which is that if you have a central organization that lots of people depend on in order to, you know, in order to do scholarly communication effectively, you better make sure that that central organization is accountable to its constituents and to its users, right? And that it can't turn evil and it can't do something uh, that actually undermines uh, the goals of creating this uh, shared scholarly infrastructure. And this is a realization that we came to very early on when we were developing ORCID, um, where we were just not getting any traction. We were spinning our wheels and spinning our wheels until we came up with these 10 principles that have guided ORCID since then and that have like did a lot to assuage and, 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 and address the concerns of the community about having an infrastructure like this uh, in, in you know, uh, a powerful infrastructure like this. And these principles cover some broad themes, right? Uh, you know, what they, they, they talk about if it's infrastructure, what does that mean as far as what it covers? You know, is it country specific? Is it, is it uh, institution specific? So on and so forth. It talks about governance. It talks about sustainability. It talks about insurance. It's very much informed by the experience that we've had, you know, developing ORCID, looking at other infrastructure pro projects, both successful ones and failed ones, and, um, and you know, plug for, <clears throat> and a lot of this we summarized in an article, and so I won't bore you here with that. But the important thing is that, again, one of the things we confirmed that was that these were the fundamental concerns about an organizational identifier, right? Is that they were worried that if something like this were run, it had to be run by, you know, it had to be run on a basis where it applied to lots of people, it had open governance by multiple stakeholders, and all of the things that we learned from, from, from developing ORCID. The second set of sort of uh, uh, requirements were the more technical ones, and this is what we traditionally think of uh, when we're talking about requirements. Um, and again, I'm not going to go into huge detail and specifics, but I want to talk about like basically three broad things that characterize the problem of dealing with organizational identifiers. Um, and this was a phrase that that uh, that we'd often hear, particularly in the ORCID days. I mean. Aren't organizational identifiers easier than identifiers for, for people? <laughs> there you go. Right. That's the right answer. They're not. They're not, and that's because even though there might be fewer of them, organizations have irritating habits. They do things like merge, split, have aliases, they die, they get reborn. They have some sub-organizations, affiliated organizations. And last I checked, people don't have sub-people. And people don't split. And they don't merge often. Now, Josh, if you've got counterexamples, please let me know. Um, so there really are some complicated issues that you have to deal with with organizational identifiers. And, you know, and so that was a concern um, and, and something that we gathered a lot of information about. The second thing that really became evident was that one's perspective the glasses that one has on when you talk about organization identifiers really influences what you think organizational identifiers are and what they're designed to solve. And so let me give you sort of a, a, a walkthrough. You know, the rose-tinted view of the world is simply this. There's an identifier name. How hard can it be? Harvard University, right? No problem. What, you know, what complication is there in this? Well, 
you know, that's fine, and that's a particular point of view. But what if you're looking at it from the subscriptions point of view, right? Or, um, or perhaps the technical subscriptions point of view, where you're thinking of IP addresses. Um, the membership, you know, point of view might jibe with that. But then let's think about Harvard as a legal entity. The legal entity for Harvard University is the president and fellows of Harvard College. How many researchers do you know who've put down as their affiliation the president and fellows of Harvard College? It doesn't happen. And the point here is that it is very important to understand what problem you're trying to solve when you are trying to solve the problem of identifiers for organizations. We had roughly the same problem with what we were doing with uh, identifiers for researchers. But in this case, it became clearly evident that one of the things that we had to do, we could try and solve all these problems, right? But one of the things that we concluded as we looked at some of the existing um, you know, uh, systems was that you know, the reasons that they have not succeeded in one way or another either had to do with these, these, these non-functional requirements, the governance, the things like that, or the technical ones. They were too ambitious. They tried to do too much. They tried to address too many different use cases, and they all got muddled. You know, and then as a last example, uh, affiliations, right, where you might have a little bit more detail uh, having to do downstairs. So again, perspective is a very important thing and something that we've really been thinking about as we try and uh, understand this problem. Um, and then the third uh, broad topic that I want to talk about is just what is an organization, right? Um, and Again, this seems like an obvious thing until you get people coming up to you and saying, hey, I've got a problem, um, maybe you can help me solve it. And they say, uh, hey, can we assign organizational identifiers to projects, right? So one of the projects that we're, that's working with us on this is Thor. Uh, are they an organization? Should they have an identifier? How about conferences? Conferences are a hot spot at the moment. People are thinking about how to um, deal with the proliferation of conferences out there, conferences that have similar names, either intentionally or accidentally, conferences that are you know, fly-by-night affairs that start up and, and then shut down, conferences that move publishers. right? All of these things are problems that they face, and they think, well, is that an organization? So this is yet another kind of problem that we're facing. So Crossref Datasite, ORCID, NOR, uh, have put out these postings, right, where basically, and here they are, right, ORCID, same day, is, this isn't synchronization, I don't know, it's synchronized blog posts, people. This is pretty impressive. Um, I encourage you to go read these, because one of the things that they're going to do is they're going to point you at three more documents that we've assembled, all identified with DOIs, uh, that summarize some of the things that we are trying to address and that we concluded after our investigation over the past year. One of them has to do with governance. One of them has to do with an overview of the current situation and why we think it's not working. And then the third one has to do with what we think is a good, practical scoping of the problem, focus on a particular use case, and potential technical solution. And we've put these documents out there with the goal of actually starting a working group uh, that will actually take that information forward and explore how we can potentially create an organizational identifier, how we can do so, we hope, without creating another organization in the process, um, and how we can do so in a way that avoids some of the reefs and, 
and rocks that other identifier schemes have tried on, uh, uh, have, have failed on. And um, there's going to be a lot of conversation. I'm afraid it's probably a bit late for you to sign up because it's next week. But um, one of the big places where we're going to be talking about this is at Pitapalooza in Reykjavik next week. So um, this has really been a summary of one of the projects that I think is probably going to occupy a lot of my time next year. It's not the only project. Uh, but as I said, uh, if you wanted to learn about all the other things, you should have been here yesterday. Thank you. I'm Eleonora Dagiene from Lithuania, and I'm a publisher. The main things I will deliver to Lithuania for many, many scholarly publishers that uh, metadata is needed, and it's a real fact because many of them don't know about metadata, <laughs> about its existence. So it's great. I'm Ian Calvert, I'm a data scientist from Digital Science. It's been great, there's such a mix of people from all around the world at completely different levels. Um, and then to host it here in the world site is just fantastic. The on-the-hour talks were a really excellent idea, so um, uh, the setup was general booths and conversations, um, but then every hour there was a different talk. And some of those were about Crossref, which is really interesting to learn, some of the new bits that are happening, but also um, a completely different split and very interesting talk about primates as well. Um, also helped give a great intro for talking to new people. I think it helped spark a lot of conversations that then lead on to be very useful rather than people staying grouped around just the people they know. It's, it's been really wonderful. This really is a, a variety of people coming together um, so it's very open to new people. So if you've not been to one of these things, I would heavily recommend you come on. Okay, so I'm uh, very happy to uh, introduce our final speaker today, April Hathcock, who is scholarly communication librarian at NYU, talking about opening up the, the margins. So welcome, April. Um, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the day today. Um, the entire day, I know several people came up and asked me, um, you know, how was it with our meeting and our business? Like, you know, was that okay? Um, and that was actually great. Uh, in a former life, I was a corporate attorney. Um, so I found it particularly interesting that you all are incorporated in the state of New York. I would have suggested the state of Delaware. Um, but alas, I was not your, your attorney, so there you go. But here's a there's a little free tidbit for you there. Normally that would have cost you over $500, so there you go. Um, but seriously, I'm delighted to be here. Um, as a librarian, um, you know, I, I feel like I have to say, um, and as someone who's normally the loudmouth in the room, so I'm glad that there were other loudmouths that, that spoke up. <laughs> um, last week was International Open Access Week, and the theme was Open in Action. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit uh, about open access and about the ways that open access can function to uh, bring conversations, bring scholarship from the margins into our mainstream discourse. We've talked a lot today about metadata and about using metadata to find the research that's there. Um, but I want to talk more about what that research that's there looks like and how representative is it of the world that we live in and of the research that actually exists. Um, often when we talk about the way openness functions um, in action, we tend to focus on the ways in which openness enables good scholarship 
at least our conception of good scholarship, to get into the hands of those outside of our privileged ivory towers of academia. Uh, someone mentioned that the first paper was published out of the Royal Society. I would argue that there was actually papers that were published even before that in the African continent um, and in the Arab world. Um, so we talk about getting good scholarship into the hands of people in the developing world. Independent researchers with no institutional homes, non-academic researchers without access to institutional collections, or researchers working in institutions lacking the resources to subscribe to the top publications in their field. As my colleague Sarah Christinger notes in her article, a critical take on open educational resource practices interrogating commercialization, colonialism, and content, we often view openness in a very paternalistic and sacred savior kind of way. Openness is the great blessing from on high that we're bringing down to, uh, from the global and academic north, that we bring down to the global and academic south, spreading worthwhile knowledge to those poor marginalized souls who must otherwise do without. I want to challenge that conceptualization of open, however. I want to flip the script, so to speak, on how we view open. So rather than looking at it as a means of getting mainstream scholarship out to the margins, instead I want us to see it as a way of getting scholarship from marginalized communities into our mainstream discourse. There is a wealth of experience, knowledge, and perspective that is largely unseen and unheard in mainstream scholarship. Indeed, scholarly communication and academic discourse largely reflect the systemic biases that we find in broader society. With open access, however, voices at the margins are better able to come toward the center, toward the mainstream. As Nicole Brown and her colleagues acknowledge in their article on incorporating American black feminism into the digital humanities, this type of scholarship is about, quote, opening up spaces that can empower and amplify the voices and narratives of the marginalized. In a very fundamental way, openness truly allows scholarship to exist as a conversation, inviting marginalized voices to join into the discourse. As a librarian in the United States, I'm particularly interested in this function of openness, as one of my national organizations, the Association of College and Research Libraries, has recently adopted scholarship as conversation as one of the foundational threshold concepts for information literacy in higher education. We're encouraged to teach our students that the scholarly record is built through an iterative process and that so-called experts understand that a given issue may be characterized by several competing perspectives as part of an ongoing conversation in which information users and creators come together and negotiate meaning. Now this may be an aspirational goal for uh, many of, of, of us um, in my world who are engaged in teaching information literacy, uh, but it's far from the nature of traditional scholarship today. Our traditional mode of scholarly communication with a limited selection of materials on a limited selection of topics published by a limited selection of gatekeepers and housed behind paywalls accessible only to a limited selection of researchers and users, this mode of scholarly communication constitutes a closed conversation at best, an extended monologue at worst. It is not the scholarship as communication that we envision when we talk aspirationally about the function of scholarly discourse. It is not discourse at all. Openness, however, allows for scholarship to take place as a real conversation, a conversation that is not only open in access, but also open in scope of ideas and topics, open in participation, open in terms of the voices represented, including those voices that normally get relegated to the margins. 
Open scholarship demands that scholarly discourse be more than an echo chamber, in which the same articles and ideas get cited and recited among the same small group of researchers. Open scholarship allows for previously silenced voices and discussions to be heard. In a primary way, this means opening up the research process beyond the realm of the final research output or product. Um, in other words, going beyond this Western mode of knowledge creation that must always result in written, published book or article, um, to different decolonized ways of thinking and knowing, ways that involve collaboration, self-reflection, slow and purposeful methodology and theorizing. In their article for slow scholarship, Allison Mounts and her colleagues provide an interesting reflection on slow conversational scholarship that goes beyond the current counting culture of many of our neoliberal institutions. When it comes to this attempt to shift focus from the research product to the overall research process through openness, um, I find the work of the Center for Open Science with its open science framework particularly encouraging. OSF is a completely free and open source tool that allows researchers from all over the world to integrate and publish every as aspect of their iterative research process, from initial brainstorming of ideas to failed data sets to, yes, even the final published article. Built as a scholarly commons to connect the entire research cycle, it allows research work that might not otherwise be seen see the light of day. It helps to bring that marginalized research out of the margins and allows for the conversation of scholarship to take place throughout the research process. And I also want to take a moment to, um, um, to acknowledge the work that's done by Crossref and, and by ORCID and some of your other uh, partnerships and your other institutions because they're also helping to bring scholarship to research, connect scholarship to researchers and connect researchers to scholarship in that back and forth conversational sort of way. Another way in which openness brings marginalized voices into the conversation of scholarship is by opening scholarly discourse up beyond the researcher. Essentially, open scholarship helps us to disrupt this town versus gown divide and bring voices from outside the ivory tower into our scholarly discourse. Too often, non-academics are seen as not also being intellectuals in their own right and are often not included in scholarly communication except as the subjects of study. With the principles of openness, we can bring more marginalized voices from outside of academia into our scholarly conversations and thereby benefit from their direct knowledge and experience. With openness, we can take the conversation of scholarship beyond the researcher to incorporate the voices of the researched. For example, at the Gender and Sexuality and in Information Science Colloquium at Simon Fraser in Vancouver, Canada earlier this year, Archivist Jen LaBarbera talked about her work with the Lambda Archives of San Diego. It's a community archive of LGBTQ history developed specifically for use by local activists. LaBarbera explained how the archives provide activists with a space to connect directly with the historical struggle of their community and to connect that history through the use of physical primary materials to the work that they are doing today. As a community archive, the Lambda collection goes beyond um, warehousing artifacts for outside academic study and exists to be used directly by those working within the communities that originally created those materials. 
Thus, among information professionals, this conversation of scholarship surrounding primary source material is being open to include not only the voices of the researcher, but also the perspectives of community creators and even those who are curating the materials for research. And I argue that the same shift in approach should also be taking place in our broader scholarly discourse. Indeed, in some cases, it already is. Um, I think in particular of the work of Michelle Fine, who is the Distinguished Professor of Psychology, Urban Education, and Women's Studies at the City University of New York. Fine is an advisor for what's called the Public Science Project, an initiative that equips and empowers marginalized communities throughout the United States to conduct research on issues directly affecting their lives. The project operates under a belief that those most intimately impacted by research should take the lead in shaping research questions, framing interpretations, and designing meaningful products and actions. For one of her most recent projects, Dr. Fine has been collaborating with groups of urban LGBTQ youth of color to develop and administer a nationwide survey of the issues of most salience to their lives. As data come in, the youth will fully own and determine the outcome of the study. This work, though it is taking place on the streets of the Bronx, in West Philadelphia, Baltimore, or in my own uh, neighborhood in Harlem in New York City, is also a part of our scholarly record and an important contribution to scholarly discourse. The principles of openness make this kind of marginalized inclusion possible, regardless of how these youth eventually decide to use their data. One other way that um, openness allows us to broaden, to further broaden the conversation of our scholarship is by opening up the discourse to discussions of failure. When it comes to scholarly communication, failure is one of those areas that forever remain hushed in the dark. And yet there is much we can learn from the work that has been marginalized because it has not produced the desired or even expected results. Because much of our research and knowledge is locked away in Western colonized ideals, ideals that favor the solitary and successful um, scholarly genius, little if any place is made for work that could be considered a failure. Instead, that work is hidden away and not expected to enter the realm of scholarly discourse via publication unless or until it produces viable and successful results. However, in a more collaborative paradigm of knowledge production, one that values the slow, iterative nature of research, one that is decolonized and moves beyond the white Western ideal, so-called failure is actually welcome as part of the research process. Failed research is simply one step in the big collaborative effort made toward finding a particular answer for a particular time to a particular problem. Um, as my colleague Philip Cohen, who, Cohen, who founded uh, Social Archive, a new social sciences uh, preprint server, uh, says, he says, the, the person who finds your mistake early on becomes your collaborator. But the person who finds the mistake in your research down the road after it's been published becomes your mortal enemy. Um, and this conception of the very nature of research as unfixed and subject to context rather than as a quest for absolute answers represents yet another way in which knowledge can and should be decolonized and de-westernized to allow for more marginalized perspectives. As Judith or Jack Halberstein notes in their book, The Queer Art of Failure, under certain circumstances, failing, losing, forgetting, unmaking, undoing, unbecoming, not knowing, may in fact offer more creative, more cooperative, more surprising ways of being in the world. With openness, there is space for failure in a decolonized version of scholarship. 
For this reason, the recent news from the Wellcome Trust that it would be creating a bold new publication platform is particularly exciting. Um, using services developed by F1000 Research, Wellcome's new platform will allow researchers to publish a wide variety of outputs from standard research articles and data sets through to null and negative results. Similar to the work being done by OSF, Wellcome's new platform will allow scholarship to become more open throughout the various phases of the research process, including those phases that result in a dead end. In turn, this more open scholarly discourse will allow more diverse voices to participate in and contribute to the conversation surrounding research. As Wellcome's head of digital services, Robert Kiley notes, this model of wholly open research publishing will bring benefits to researchers and institutions, as well as to society more broadly. Indeed, with a more open research practice, uh, society as a whole, particularly those marginalized members of society, can participate more fully in the research it supports. With the principles of openness, we can convene a scholarly discourse that is more inclusive of those voices most often relegated to the outskirts by traditional methods of knowledge creation and dissemination. In her article, Library Publishing and Diversity Values, my colleague and friend Charlotte Rowe encourages us to use openness as a way to push back against these biased systems and support publications that might not otherwise have a voice. It's important to note, however, that while openness helps us to achieve this goal, or it can help us to achieve this goal, it is not without its sources of critique. Open scholarship is still a part of our broader society, and it's still vulnerable to the biases and systemic power dynamics inherent in our broader society. As I mentioned in a talk at a Futures Initiative event at the City of New York, uh, City University of New York Graduate Center earlier this year, the truth is that not all open scholarship is treated equally. Same as with lockdown, market-based scholarship, open scholarship can and does replicate some of the biases inherent in academia and our society as a whole. And this brings, me to, uh, brings to mind a recent meeting I went to a couple of months ago. It was a Force 11 working group meeting where we were talking about principles for scholarship or for opening up scholarship. Um, and while the focus was very much on sort of Western scholarship and North Atlantic scholarship, um, I did have a, a chance during that meeting to speak with several researchers who come from the Global South. And it was very interesting to hear from them the ways that uh, research in the Global North has sort of uh, consumed the way that they do research in the Global South. So they have to write on topics that are of interest to the Global North. Right? They're more likely to be published if they're writing on a topic that's of interest to the United States or to Europe than if they write on a topic that's of interest to their uh, native region. Um, they have to include cita sufficient citations to uh, researchers from the Global North. It's even better if they collaborate with a researcher from the Global North in order to be published. So for them, the work that they're doing there to get their names out is work that's very much focused away from their local regions and more focused um, towards sort of this Western ideal of scholarship. And another way that we can look at this is by uh, this, um, let's see, oops this map that my colleague Juan Pablo Alperin put together of um, sort of showing the world scale based on the number of citations in Web of Science. Um, and as you can see, you know, uh, I take the African continent, for example. It's the second largest continent, both in terms of population and geography, and yet it's nothing but a sliver here, um, as if to say that science isn't happening on the continent of Africa, which is ridiculous. It is happening on that continent, but it's not being reflected in what's being published or what's being read or what's being cited. Right? 
ultimately what we're talking about here when we talk when I talk about openness sort of bringing um, marginalized voices into the discussion it isn't about you know whether something is whether you have to pay for it or whether it's free um, it's not sort of a, a business model problem but what I'm talking more about is that it's a cultural or co a colonial problem right it's it's a way the way that we think about what marks quality research what makes for an interesting research topic what are questions that are worth investigating or not worth investigating that's ultimately uh, where the issue lies. But even as we seek to bring openness and inclusion um, into our scholarship or into our scholarly discourse, we also need to think about ethics. Um, indeed, ethical considerations such as self-representation and privacy make it important that marginal communities be integrally involved in any attempts to open their work to broader scholarly discourse. Um, I look, for instance, at the thought-provoking work of my colleague Tara Robins Robertson, a librarian and activist. Um, and she did some work relating to one digital media provider's decision to provide open access to a queer feminist porn publication. Earlier this year, the company, Reveal Digital, um, decided to publish its collection of digitized copies of On Our Backs, which is a print queer feminist porn magazine that ran from the early 1980s to the early 2000s. The digitized collection is part of Reveal's Independent Voices collection, which is a great collection. Um, it chronicles the transformative decades of the 60s, 70s, and 80s through the lens of an independent alternative press. And while Reveal took the time to secure copyright permissions from the publishers and got the publisher's consent to mark the work with a Creative Commons license for public reuse, Reveal did not contact or in any way consult with the people represented in these sexually explicit images. For those who provided releases to the original publishers for use of their images, the releases did not go beyond the limited print run of the original publication and in no way addressed the issue of future digitization or open access publication. However, because of concerns raised by Robertson, myself, and many others in the information and in the LGBTQ community, Reveal has since closed off the collection from public view and is now taking steps to consult with a group of stakeholders, including some of the former models from the publication. This example of On Our Backs points to one of the truths behind opening up the margins. What is legal is not always ethical when deciding to provide open access to the works of marginalized communities. That is why it's essential to engage community involvement and agency in any decisions to open marginalized content to scholarly discourse. Um, in their presentation at the Gender and Sexuality Colloquium, Michelle Caswell, Alda Alina Migoni, and Noah Garassi discussed the importance of community ownership and custodianship of marginalized ar archival collections as a means of building representational belonging in the face of symbolic annihilation. To truly open up the margins in a meaningful way, marginalized material must be brought into scholarly conversation through methods free from colonization and exploitation. And the only way this can be done is through empowering involvement from members of those marginalized communities. I also think of the work being done by um, the organizations Mukurtu and Local Contact. So they're each, uh, Mukurtu is a platform for sharing digitized cultural history. Um, and Local Context is a platform that works with Mukurtu to add traditional knowledge labels uh, to objects that have been digitized for indigenous communities. And they've been working with communities throughout the United States, um, in Australia, and several other places to help these communities digitize their indigenous artifacts, but also label them in ways that are meaningful for their cultural um, context. So, for example, they may have objects that are only meant to be um, 
consumed during the spring season or objects that are only meant to be viewed by women or things like that. So allowing these, working directly with these communities and allowing them to have agency and have a say in the way that their materials are made available and made open. Ultimately, if we wish to empower the involvement of marginalized communities in scholarly discourse, and we should, then we've got to diversify the current gatekeepers to the scholarly record. Even in the realm of open scholarship, there are gatekeepers in the form of faculty hiring tenure and promotion committees, reviewers, publishers, librarians, and other information professionals. We, mean, we need more diverse perspectives among scholars doing the actual labor of research and writing. We need more diverse perspectives among reviewers who determine what scholarship is worthy of publication and what is not. We need more diverse perspectives among publishers packaging this research and making it available. And finally, we need more diverse perspectives among librarians who are organizing and curating this material and making it discoverable to researchers. When I say we need more diverse perspectives, I quite simply mean that we need more diverse people and we need more inclusive institutions to ensure the success and well-being of those people. We need to incorporate more diverse voices in order to break out of this echo chamber of scholarship that we currently find ourselves in. Within the university setting, at my institution at NYU, and at colleges and universities across the US and to some extent here in the UK, students are demanding more diverse faculty, more diverse university administration, and more diverse curricula for their learning. They're demanding that marginalized perspectives be more fully included in the scholarly discourse they are learning and in which they are participating. Open access helps us do this, but it's only a tool in the right direction and does not operate in a vacuum. Opening up the margins requires intentional, focused work to bring marginalized voices and perspectives into the scholarly conversation. As Charlotte Rowe writes, OA allows new voices to find their way into the disciplinary conversations, reach new audiences, both academic and public, and impact existing and emerging fields of scholarship and practice in a transformative way. Let's continue to harness the power of openness and build more inclusive scholarly discourse that leaves no voices in the margins. Thank you. My name is Emmanuel and uh, I work with Cottage Labs. Um, and we do lots of open science development work and a project-based work. Um, we also run services. Um, one that people on this podcast might know is the director of open access journals, the DOAJ. Yes, the, the health uh, kind of open technology day that, that we had uh, was brilliant. I, I really liked it, yeah. Uh, my name is Helen Jurier. I'm from the Royal Society. This is probably the third or fourth Crossref conference I've been to, actually, so I don't always only attend when it's in the building. Although it's been a Crossref meeting, we have representatives from ORCID and from DataSight um, demonstrates there is a kind of a, a core group of people bringing metadata lovers together. <laughs> I think it's really important. It, we've had it drummed home to us today that it's important, but I think it, it, that kind of re-emphasizes um, the attendees' belief anyway that as somebody that publishes content, your content can't be discovered without that metadata, without 
putting the, that information behind your article that means it's discoverable, that, that means it, it fits into indexing services or, or search engines um, and links across various different networks and that's not something any publisher can achieve on their own. If you've made it this far, thanks so much for listening. I hope you found it interesting and that it gave you an idea of the sorts of things we talk about at Crossref. If you want to attend one of our upcoming events around the world or just get more information about our community, please take a look at crossref.org.